I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to John chapter 19. This morning, our focus is verses 31 through 42. And as you're turning there, I just want to uh, a couple of more announcements, but um, I'll be brief here. Um, Bobby kind of moved quickly through the, uh, the app on, on Church Center. Um, so he did mention under more, if you are interested in membership, uh, we've kind of, we had put those uh, membership seminars on hold for quite a while. We want to resume those and we want to figure out when the best time that would be uh, uh, for you. Uh, the options being Sunday morning during the Sunday school hour or sometime during the week. So if you're interested in, in uh, joining the church, uh, we'd like you to sign up for that class. Or even if you're unsure as to when you'd be available, just to simply express your interest would be, would be very helpful. So uh, if you need help with the app, uh, see Bobby, Andrea, um, whoever else knows. I don't exactly know everything about how to make it work, so I've just figured it out myself. So. Um, but please uh, take advantage of that. Secondly, next Sunday, uh, we have the joy of baptizing. And uh, we're, we're going to be doing that. Uh, so, if you have not yet been baptized as a believer in Jesus, and uh, that's an important step of obedience to Christ. Uh, Jesus commanded his disciples to make disciples, and, and the indicator of that discipleship would be Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so believer, if you have as yet not been baptized and, uh, and you are understanding the importance of, of obeying Christ in this, uh, I want to encourage you to talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation and, and perhaps you would be included next week in our baptism together. All right, well, let's look at uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 19, our text for this morning, beginning in verse 31, through to the end of the chapter. Let's give our full attention to God's word as it is being read. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, that is Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. These things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid, yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is God's word. 
Let's uh, pray together. Let's ask for the Spirit's help during this time. Father in heaven, this word is your word. And you tell us it is living and it is active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. These words uh, will not do anything in us apart from your spirit, Father, illuminating them to us and planting them deep within us. And so we pray that you would do that. Lord, as the one who is the proclaimer of this, I realize that I could be a distraction. And so I pray that you would um, cause only what is helpful and useful for the minds of your people and for those who are as yet unbelieving but that you're going to save. Lord, would you cause my unhelpful words to be blown away like chaff in the wind. Lord, what remains needs to be what you are saying. So give us that, Father. Speak to our hearts even now. We want the Lord Jesus to be glorified in this and we want to be built up in this. So cause those things to happen, we pray. Amen. Well, from the beginning of this gospel, John's objective, and I I keep returning to this theme because this is really why John wrote the gospel, his objective in telling us this story is about Jesus, is that we, the the reader, we, those hearing this, may believe. This is John's thesis in chapter 20, verse 31. He states that as well in this section here in verse 35 that we read together. John wants us to grasp this. John wants us to get Jesus. John wants us to believe so that we may live. Because in believing, truly believing in Jesus, that is where we find eternal life. I just realized that this is going to be a massive distraction. I'm sorry about that. All right. Um, Yes, he he wants us to believe so that we may have life. So there's another proof that John offers as we uh, have read through this text, another proof that he wants to tell us so that we may believe, two more examples of Scripture being fulfilled. We see those in verses 36 and 37. And what these Scriptures do is they zero in on the moments right after Jesus has died. If you just look up uh, in the text just before where we read in verse 31, the last thing Jesus says in verse 20, or sorry, verse 30. Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So here are the moments after he has died. And John wants us to see, even in this moment, the scripture is being fulfilled so that we may believe. Now he notes two facts. Jesus' legs were not broken as the other two were on his right and left. Um, They were not broken like the others. And it was, in fact, to confirm that Jesus was dead, a spear was thrust into his side. The other scripture being fulfilled is Psalm 34.20. There, it describes God's care, God's care for the one who is righteous. And this is applied, the Psalm of David is applied to the Messiah. It's the quote there from that psalm, he keeps his bones, not one of them is broken. So Jesus' legs were not broken by the soldiers. Now being that it's Passover week, there's an, a, another possible image here which is being fulfilled from the psalm, that of uh, being applied to Jesus in his death, that of the, the Passover lamb being slaughtered because in Exodus 
12, Numbers 9, it instructs there that when the Passover lamb is slaughtered, none of the bones of the lamb should be broken. That, that's perhaps an image that, that John has in view here, but all the same, he is giving this as proof that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that Jesus is indeed the one who he claimed to be. Another scripture that is, that is being fulfilled here, Zechariah 12.10 And if you were to look at that passage, it it describes there God's gracious provision for the house of David, really the the people of God, God's gracious provision, and and all of the inhabitants of of Jerusalem, and how the Lord ultimately gives salvation. And here, in this passage, John understands the means of that salvation. It's a quote directly from from Zechariah 12.10, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced. That God's salvation then comes to the people of God. And the piercing that God himself receives is the piercing that is received by Jesus in his body. So these two examples John provides to us is a kind of a, a shorthand, if you will. He doesn't fully explain them. He just, he just says these, these scriptures are being fulfilled here. They function as a kind of a shorthand for really what he... Uh, to help us understand what it really truly means to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That big idea here is that that Jesus is the Passover lamb by which the people of God experience the grace of God. And the grace and mercy of God, unlike the Passover lamb, which rescued the people of God from slavery in Egypt, the mercy of God is revealed here not as an, a, a release from a human oppressor, but to rescue the people of God from eternal consequences of sin and its oppressive power in the present. That's Jesus. This truth has been on the evangelist's mind since the beginning of this gospel. And I call him the evangelist to distinguish him from, from John, who he talks about at the beginning. He tells us, John the baptizer announced Jesus coming on the scene. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for the reader of the gospel, for, for us, if we understand this rightly, believing in Jesus is not simply believing facts about him, that he is the Son of God, or that he is the Christ, the Messiah. It's not merely, but it's also believing the meaning of those facts and the facts of his dying and what his dying means. You see, the point I'm making here from this passage and drawing upon something the Apostle Paul says in reflecting on the very ministry of Jesus, the meaning of these facts is that Jesus became sin. For us, The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, I quote this often, For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that Jesus became sin for us teaches us what has been done about our sin. That Jesus became sin for us teaches us what has been done about our sin. But it also teaches us what we should do about our sin. You see, as the one who became sin for us, Jesus' body was pierced. As the one who became sin for us, Jesus' body 
was prepared for burial. And as the one who became sin for us, Jesus' body was buried. And and I want to use these facts about Jesus as a kind of a picture to, to show us, to teach us what we should do in response to what Jesus has done about our sin, what we should do knowing what he has done about our sin, what we should do about the sin that remains in our own lives. So as we move along, I'm going to show you how we should be thinking about and how we should be taking action on our sin. So first of all, Jesus' body was pierced. When there is a death, it needs to be confirmed. I think we all, we all get this. Um, some years ago, a dear member of our congregation uh, passed away in his home. And uh, um, a number of uh, people from his care group uh, joined at his house, and I was called in to, to join them. And um, he was there in the home. And, and we had to wait for the coroner to show up. Because what the coroner does is, is, is effectively make a declaration. I mean, it was obvious. Uh, he'd gone to be with the Lord, and he was there. But it was just his body. But it, like, there needed to be something official, right? And the coroner comes and makes a, a declaration. And I think the sim- similar thing is in a hospital. Um, somebody comes in and they're, they're doing life-saving measures and in the end, everybody gets it. We couldn't save them. But the doctors, one of them, at least I've seen this on TV, they call it time of death. It's confirmed. Well, I think in a similar way, um, there, there's something going on in the scene that we see with, with Jesus. He's already dead. Now, crucifixion is an, is an ugly and agonizing way to die. The Romans had, had perfected this very ghoulish practice, and they had perfected it for maximum suffering. Then that was meted out on, on enemies of the state. And the practice was to, to leave the bodies up on the cross so that whether they were alive or dead, carnivorous animals could start chewing at the feet. I know it's a very ugly scene. And vultures would eventually pick at their flesh. Death would come very slowly and usually by asphyxiation. Now, as I said, in that previous section, Jesus had breathed his last breath. He had given up his spirit. And so here we are in this scene as we look at this text. This is the day of preparation for the Sabbath. And added to that, it was a particularly important Sabbath day, which would begin on the Friday. That was the Friday. It would begin that evening at sundown. But it was a a day of preparation for the Sabbath and a Sabbath that took place during the highest holy week there was, which was Passover. And we're, we're told at the beginning, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, why did this matter? Why did this matter? They needed to be dead, to be taken away. Since the Jewish leaders were in large part responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, they knew it, they felt an obligation to keep the law. Now, it's ironic that they have facilitated the murder of the innocent one, yet, but in their own minds, their own deluded minds, they're trying to be righteous. See, according to the Mosaic law, according to the old, our Old Testament, 
what Israelites practiced, that, that, that leaving someone who was executed for a crime that was punishable by death, death, leaving that individual exposed, that body exposed all night would ultimately be a defilement of the land. It says in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. And here's the reason. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance. That is to say, leaving the, the, the now dead one hanging on a tree on a cross would effectively be a defilement of the land. So these religious leaders are going, we, we can't have that happen. In particular, not this week, not Passover week, no. They don't want to be responsible for defiling the land. So when they came to Jesus, the soldiers at the instruction of Pilate, they observed he was already dead. They did not break his legs. And at that point, the soldier pierced his side to, to confirm that he was dead. And at once, there came out blood and water. Now, there's been a lot of, a lot of writing on the matter of blood and water coming out, and there's some symbolic thing behind that. I'm not going to deal with that this morning. But why was Jesus pierced? And, and the bottom line here is to fulfill prophecy, of course, to fulfill the prophecy about the Messiah, yes, so that we could know the mercy of God and be saved. But from the perspective of the Roman soldiers, simply to confirm that he was dead. That's what they cared about. So that his body could be taken down. So here's, here's the application. In, if Jesus in his body became sin for us and his body was pierced to confirm his death, you and I, in light of what's been accomplished for us because of our sin, you and I must continually confirm that our sin is dead because Jesus died. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing, but we have to keep coming back to that fact. That's why we keep coming back to the cross. We are we're reminded again and again and again, sin's power is dead because Jesus died. Now, that New Testament word, death, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually the same, um, same word for a, a Greek mythological god representing death, Thanatos. But the, the word effectively means separation. Death is separating the body from, from the spirit. If Jesus became sin and died, then our sin died. And when our sin dies, it is separated from us and put on Jesus who dies. Do you get that? I, I take it that this is what the Apostle Peter had in mind in his first letter. And referring to what, what, Jesus has, um, what Jesus did, he says this in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed they're quoting Isaiah 53. We die to sin and we live to righteousness by faith in Jesus who is and the confidence of what he has accomplished at the cross. So who Jesus is as the son of God, we live by, by to righteousness by faith in who Jesus is, but by also Faith in what he has accomplished at the cross. It isn't simply facts about him, but it's a, an understanding of what that means. So how do you confirm that your sin is dead? Sin's, sin's everywhere, right? 
It's in the world around us. It's the influence, perhaps, of the devil. But most notably, I think we all know this, it's lingering effects in our own bodies, right? How do you confirm that sin is dead? If we're going to live like the people of God, we must reflect the character of God. That is true. So if it's Satan's serpentine whispers or the world around us or our own flesh that is parading before us the deceitful pleasures of greed or lust or deceit or unforgiveness, pride, gossip, bitterness, malice, coveting, self-righteousness, how do we, how do we not give in? How do we not fold under the pressure of temptation? We know what we're supposed to do, right? We know. The Apostle Paul asks rhetorically, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into his Christ, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We, we participated in some respect in Jesus' death. How can we continue in sin? And what the way we have victory over sin is by reminding ourselves that sin is dead. And that's what I said at the beginning. He who became sin died for us, thus killing the power of sin. So, so every time, every time we look to Jesus in his cross, sin is pierced. We're reminded that its power has been taken away. We, we we confirm that our sin is dead by, by looking forward, by, by claiming what Christ has done for us in him. Just in case you needed a little commercial. There. <laughs> the, Paul, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says this, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see what Jesus has accomplished for us, in, not in just in dying, but in rising and taking his place at the right hand of the Father. And so with the Apostle Paul, we can say, as he says to the church in Philippi, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Confirm sin is dead. You pierce it with the knowledge that Jesus has died for us and in becoming sin and the knowledge that in Christ you have indeed become the very righteousness of God. Jesus was pierced. We must pierce our sin confirm it's dead. Second, Jesus' body was prepared. Uh, the, the text, I'll, I'll take you back to what the text says. After these things, we're told, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, this Jewish custom of you using myrrh and aloes, while it was an honorable thing to treat the dead with this kind of respect, it had a very practical purpose. It didn't do anything for the sake of the one who is dead. They're dead. The purpose of it was for the sake 
of the living, to effectively mask the, the odor of the decaying body. Now, clearly, clearly these men, in what they did to prepare Jesus' body, had no clue that he was going to rise again. They didn't understand what the psalmist said about the Messiah. Peter would, in fact, quote this, this psalm in his Pentecost sermon. But he says, the psalmist says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You see, Jesus' body would never have decayed. It did not. It would not rot. It would not go through that process that any one of us, when dying, would. No, he would not see decay. He would not see corruption. But from their perspective, their act of of devotion was for the sake of the living. To this point, Joseph was a kind of a quiet believer. He was fearful of the Jewish leadership. He didn't, to this point, he hadn't let it be known that he believed in Jesus. Nicodemus, earlier, who we encounter in, uh, who earlier we encountered in uh, Chapter 3, Jesus had explained to him that entrance into the kingdom of God uh, necessitated, was predicated on being born again, born spiritually, born of God. Now here, both of these men are, are, and both on the ruling council, both are treating Jesus' body with, with dignity by a proper Jewish burial. Great expense was, was had here, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. They assumed decay. Death assumes decay. And preparation needs to be made to mitigate the offensiveness of death. Now, the risk of perhaps stretching this this picture, this metaphor, in the same way you and I must prepare to put sin to death in our own lives. That it has been killed that its power has been taken away, that it has been pierced, that's a reality. But we cannot be cavalier about it. We have to put sin to death in our own lives continually. We must keep preparing ways in which we would not fall into sin. We understand our weaknesses, don't we? It doesn't take much. It doesn't take much, does it? Somebody says an unkind word. I, I, I was confronted with this, and, and Kathy corrected me, walking into a store, fumbling with my mask, and somebody barked at me, put on your mask. I'm like, what do you think I'm doing? You know, it's like, but Kathy said, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> you know, watch your attitude. She was right. It's so easy to slip up, isn't it? We have to continue revisiting the fact that, that, that sin is dead but it still seems to work its way in, doesn't it? I need to be prepared. Love my neighbor. I need to be thinking proactively how it is I will be kind when somebody is unkind to me. Preparation involves avoiding sin. The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy, understanding that he, like all of us, are in danger. He says to him, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Pursue. It's not just avoidance, but fill it with something else, right? Don't just avoid the sin. Replace it with proactive 
righteousness, with proactive faith, with love and peace. That's what we should do. The, the Proverbs says this, ponder the path of your feet. Ponder the path of your feet. Think, think about where you're going. Then all your ways will be pure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. You know what those evil places are. You know what the things are that are going to trip you up. Prepare. Prepare your mind. Find some alternative. Recognize your own weakness. Don't put yourself in places where temptations are high. If you struggle with substance abuse, you're not going to be hanging around in a bar. I was, I was listening to a sermon earlier this week and the, the preacher was speaking to college students and he, he said it very frankly and I thought this was very good advice. He said to them, you must decide for holiness during the day. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, it likely won't go well for you if you're just trying to decide on Friday night in the back of your father's car. You have to make decisions in advance. In advance. And in order to prepare, we have to embrace the purpose of our lives as believers. Brothers and sisters, what does Paul say in, to, the, to the Ephesians? We are, this is Ephesians 2.10. He just told them, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this isn't your own doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of your own work, so no one, no one can boast before God. But then he goes on to say, we are his workmanship. God formed you. We were his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this is the beautiful thing, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's got a list of things you can do. And it's our job. See, it's not just about telling ourselves in our mind, okay, I won't sin. That's good. <laughs> Flee those things. But we must be proactive in preparing not to let sin grip us by entering into what God has given to us. Maybe a prayer that we all pray is, Lord, what's on my list today that you've already prepared for me? Show me what acts of righteousness. Show me what good works I should be doing that I should walk in them. We must prepare. Third, Jesus' body was buried. His body was buried. That's obvious. It was put in a tomb. But every culture, every, every people group has some kind of tradition to deal with their dead, right? It's, everybody does that. Um, even in, even in, in uh, where horrific crimes of, of mass murder, think of Nazi Germany, they did something. Very dishonorably, of course, they did something with the dead. Why? Because a body that is rotting is offensive. In the same way, brothers and sisters, our sin, because it is offensive to God, must be buried. Jesus became sin for us and was buried. Now, of course, the, the tomb didn't keep him. He walked out and left our sin there. But likewise, our sin and the sin that remains in our lives, and while we're counted righteous in God's sight, that is a true statement by faith in Jesus. We have to continue 
to bury sin. We're told in the place where he was crucified, this is verse 41 and 42, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. They put him in the tomb. So of course, again, Joe and Nick, they have no clue that Jesus is going to walk out on the third day. No clue. Pilate gave them access and they took Jesus and after embalming him, laid him in this tomb. And now I think John, of course, includes this detail so that he can tell us later that the tomb is in fact empty. It's not a, a tomb that anybody else used. There was no confusion, no other bones in there, you know, no other bodies. No, this tomb was, had one and only uh, purpose at that moment for Jesus' body, no other. And they would discover it empty without question. His body's not there. Jesus became sin and he took that sin to the grave and we must continually put it to death. Now, I would say that, that Nicodemus and, 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 uh, and Joseph, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the, the, the ruling council of which they were members, there would be no benefit in going to get the body of Jesus. There would be no social benefit of being identified and, and doing this kindness for Jesus in his death, doing this honor for him because they so loathed Jesus. There was no advantage. And I think it's true as well that when we are confronted with our own sin, in the eyes of the world, there's no real advantage in burying it. Yeah, so... I'll grant you this. The world may see some, some advantage in, in, in rehabilitation. So, so the, the one who murdered or the one who was a convicted thief spends time in prison. And yes, that's, there's value. They don't do that anymore. But you know, the world cares little about the sins of the heart. In fact, the world often celebrates sins of the heart, puts them on display as, as ideals for us. Go ahead and pursue that lust. Go ahead and be greedy. Go ahead and covet. Go ahead and slander. It's put on display in the political discourse. The world cares little about the sins of the heart. But for the children of God, for those of us whom, for whom Christ died, we have to see things differently, don't we? You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross only to make us presentable to proper society. That's not why he died. Jesus died to make us presentable to God. And so what must we do? Jesus was buried. We must bury our sin. Put it to death. The Apostle Paul says this. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Put it to death. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. How do we put these things to death? Well, much the same way that we, that we confirm that our sin is dead, much in the same way that we, we, we plan not to sin, we keep coming back to the cross. That's what was accomplished there for us. We have to be reminded of sin's power. That's why we gather like this every Sunday. 
That's why we turn to the word. That's why we have fellowship. I was sharing this with someone this last week. At least this is my own experience. I can sit and read my Bible. Then I make a regular habit of that. But it's so much more comes alive to me when I'm sitting with another brother or sister in Christ and we, we share the word together and it just seems to stick more. I need you and you need me to remind me of the gospel, to remind you of the gospel. We are reminded that sin's power is defeated. We have to take action on our sin. Um, if you recall the story of Cain and Abel, God was displeased with his sacrifice and he accepted Abel's. And, and we don't, I mean, we can surmise some things behind that. There's a lot of discussion. But the point is, there was some disobedience in Cain's heart towards the Lord. There was some act of rebellion, even in bringing the sacrifice. And the Lord told him, sin is crouching at the door. You've got to rule over it. And brothers and sisters in Christ, sin is crouching at the door for each of us, isn't it? And we can rule over it because Jesus died. And not only did he die, he rose again. He is our Passover lamb. He has freed us from bondage to sin. So, so do this regularly. Confirm that sin is dead. It has no power. Remind yourself of this truth. Prepare yourself to keep sin away. It's crouching there. Prepare yourself. And bury it. Bury the sin. Put it to death each and every day. And we do this by coming before the Lord in repentance. Because there isn't a day goes by when, when we've given in to something. And even if on the outside you look like you've got it all together. And praise God if you do. But they're still crouching at the door of your heart. Lust coveting, pride, idolatries where we value things of us more than the things of God. It's crouching there. We must constantly come before the Lord in repentance. And in that repentance, that expression of, of we have done wrong, Lord, not to wallow there, but to come again to the cross and be reminded again, yes, that sin has no power over me because Jesus died. And there's coming a day when sin will no longer be able to touch us. Because just as Jesus walked out of that tomb on the third day, we will be raised to life with imperishable bodies, unsinnable bodies. And won't that be a glorious day? Until then, until then, we are in the battle, aren't we? I'll leave you with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. Such a great encouragement for us. Romans 8, 30, 
3. And listen, we, we feel the sting of sin, don't we? we? We feel the condemnation of it. And the evil one whispers in our ear, says, you know what, you might have just gone a little bit too far this time. Paul says this in Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And the next section is what we read in the the verse that we quoted together. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. That's my summary. Nothing. Because Jesus died. So let's dwell on that. As we leave this place where it's easier not to sin, but go out in the world where it is easy to sin, come back to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of what was accomplished at the cross. Jesus was pierced. Our sin is dead. Jesus' body was prepared. And and Lord, teach us to prepare ourselves to do battle against our own temptations and against our own sins. And Father, help us once and for all to put away those things that do not please you because Jesus died. We have full victory in him and we're so very grateful for that, Father. So remind us of these things, Lord. And teach us to walk in the newness of life that you've already granted to us. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.